you know, talking about what you mentioned earlier, as far as it being a story that that we can't feed the world, and that is a story. Uh, it is not true. We would have it's a for profit story. <laughs> it's a for profit story. Yes, yes. So we we absolutely can feed everybody. A lot of uh, we could do it now. The issue is distribution. Uh, it's not even production at this level. It's just not distributing it. And a lot of what keeps regions that are are productive in poverty also is just access to market. So the market's controlled, and really that's what's creating hunger. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul talks with permaculture teacher and ecological designer, Michael Judd. Michael has worked with agroecological and whole system designs throughout the Americas for nearly two decades. His projects increase local food security and community health in both tropical and temperate growing regions. He is the author of Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist, and the founder of Project Bonafide, an international nonprofit supporting agroecology research. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for some special offers from Michael. Well, our podcast today is titled Food and Your Future with my guest, Michael Judd. Michael, it's really exciting to have you on the show. I learned about you from my friend and client, Scott Ford, who's working with you to create sustainable food and income, which I'm very excited about as well, just the concept and knowing he's involved in that. And you're also engaging some of my other clients, which I think is fantastic. And um, I, I, I really enjoyed your book, uh, Edible Landscape with a permaculture twist. I thought it was fantastic. Very, very beautifully done, by the way. And uh, what I would like to do is if you could just share a little bit about your journey, Michael, and how you ultimately ended up working in the fields of sustainable housing, gardening, and farming. Sure. Uh, very cool to be on the 4D wave with you, Paul. And Thank you. Yeah, my journey began working with natural systems 22 years ago in the Lacandon jungle uh, that stretches between current day southern Mexico and Guatemala. I lived a period there with the Lacandon Maya, who are the last of the Mayan tribes uh, that escaped the conquistadores over 500 years ago, basically by surviving deep in the jungle out of reach. And they survived by integrating into the rainforest uh, and also through a very strong shamanic-centered culture. I was living at the time in the highlands of southern Mexico uh, when I met a young Lacandon man who had come out of the jungle. He was seeking help uh, from digestive disorders. What was happening was that the jungle that they lived in was getting smaller, it was shrinking, it was getting cut down. And the Lacandon communities were being forced into smaller and smaller areas. And traditionally, they had kept the balance of their human waste streams with the space in the jungle. But as they got collectively closer together, those systems, dogs were getting into the jungle, you know, eating feces. Kids were walking around on the dog feces. So parasite cycles were, were speeding up. And this young man was coming out looking for help. And through a bunch of different gestulations, we, we figured out what was going on. And I had an idea about, you know, helping build compost toilets, 
which was something that I'd been doing in different parts of Latin America already. And basically just helps contain, you know, humanure. So it's not getting into the systems, you know, around us. So he, he agreed and he let me come back into the jungle with him. Basically a four day journey up an old dry riverbed into the heart of the jungle. And so began my experience living there and building a compost toilet out of the, of the jungle, the rainforest that surrounded their community, which when I first arrived just looked like a wild jungle untouched. But as I lived there and started working with harvesting from it, I realized that it was very intimately managed as a perennial, you know, polyculture. You know, they were getting their food from it, their medicines from it, their fibers from it, their fodder for their animals. I mean, they were building materials with it. It was this living, you know, system that they were living in and working with. And it blew my mind. Uh, you know, for the first time, I, I, I was experiencing the, the potential of humans to actually live in this regenerative way. And that began my journey. Uh, from there, I actually got very sick uh, living in in the jungle. Most of the things I was trying to help uh, eradicate, you know, I got pretty much got carried out of the jungle. And that also began a strong journey in my life of, of healing my body. Uh, so combined with that, I started working with, you know, biodynamic agriculture. I came back to the States and started working with permaculture. And then over the years, I just kept bouncing back and forth between Latin America and the U.S., a little bit of Europe, uh, working with indigenous knowledge of growing systems and then permaculture and kind of, you know, has led to where I'm at now, working with edible landscapes and agroforestry back here in the U.S. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, what a, what a, you know, clearly to me, your soul was uh, setting up all the necessary stages to bring you to the progressive development of what's now unfolded in your whole life, it sounds like. When when you're talking there and you're describing how well managed the jungle was, the first thing that comes to my mind is that, you know, most people have this kind of concept in their head that primitive people were not intelligent or that they were stupid or they, you know, that we, they didn't have advanced technologies but when you're describing how they were managing that jungle and living off of it, it sounds like they have uh, technologies that in some ways are more advanced than what we have today because what we think of it as advanced technology is actually uh, diminishing survivability and diminishing health and diminishing resources and causing all sorts of problems. Yeah, they are – some of the most powerful people I've come across uh, in all my journeys on the planet. And they have been able to live on, you know, in the same region, you know, for over 500 years and keeping their systems regenerative, you know, keeping them productive, keeping their, their culture and, and their health and everything going. And if you juxtapose that against the way we're using land, uh, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not as savvy. Yeah, well I think I think that's part of the lesson that we're all collectively in route to learning. I I also would like to say I'm sure you're very aware of this too is that there's there's a strong emergence now uh in the last 10 10 10 or more years but it's really getting strong now with an emergence in interest in native cultures and native american cultures and 
shamanism and pretty much it's it's almost like we're we're realizing that there was real deep wisdom in these things and now there's this potentially growing interest in uh incorporating some of the ideas that were once thought to be antiquated and that most so-called educated people just turn their nose up to yes we we need guides and you know the shamanic culture you know, not even just shamanic culture, just, you know, intact cultures, you know, had examples and guidance for life's experiences. And and largely we're losing that and replacing it, you know, with uh, cell phones and Internet. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're losing our roots. So we're coming back. Yeah, well, thank the Lord for that. Um, you know, I as I was reading through your book. I did what I always do and let my soul guide me to what it wanted me to read to prepare for the interview. And the first place it took me was to the last chapter, uh, your story. And uh, you were describing there how natives were suffering um, through drought and starving. And you shared that your investigation made you aware that there was a global pattern of land use and economy that countries like Nicaragua were pushed by debtors such as the IMF, Wall Street banks, and so forth to accept new structures of land use and cash crops to maximize short-term returns. Uh, you continued by sharing that cash cropping relies largely on annuals like rice, beans, corn, all annuals that frequently fail and employ slash and burn use. You finished by saying the news of hunger was no longer shocking to me. So sadly, Michael, it's highly probable that most of the people listening to this podcast have little or no idea what the rest of the world, particularly the less developed countries, are paying for American consumerism. So I'm wondering if you'd be willing to open up Pandora's box a little and give us an overview of just what is taking place so that we, uh, you know, the rest of us that often pretend there's an endless food supply and focus on the latest fashions, iPhones, video games, BMWs, or trendy fashions can realize that the cost of living that way is not only a real stress on, on the land, and but it's a serious stress on people, other natives and, and, and other people in less technologically developed countries all over the world. Yeah, we took an erroneous turn a couple generations ago when we began treating uh, food as a commodity and trading it internationally. That really shifted the landscape uh, around the globe. And also, you know, it was patterned with debt relief. So a country like Nicaragua, uh, you know, needed lending by IMF or other large lending institutions. Uh, and they had to accept dictates to, you know, to receive these loans and cash cropping to sort of meet the demands of the commodity market. Uh, they were they were really wholesale educated and and switched over from what was a more diverse agriculture that included perennial tree crops uh, and wildlife habitat for hunting. Uh, access to naturally grown medicinals and fibers and all the things I mentioned earlier to to cash cropping of annual crops, rice, beans, corn, tobacco. And the methodology 
has been to cut the forest, slash it, and burn it, uh, and, and then go ahead and till the soil and sow annual crops. Now, these areas also get really heavy rainfall, and most small farmers are on marginal land, so it's sloped. So in just one generation, the soil has literally slid off the land and has disappeared, gone into the water, wow. gone into the waterways, and left people with absolutely nothing. They left them with hunger. And, yes. and, and surprisingly, I was, I'm always amazed at how quickly culture can change, even traditional cultures. Uh, I lived in Latin America for almost 18 years. I lived in Nicaragua for 12 years. Uh, working with perennial agricultural systems, working on trying to create food security, trying to bring back some of that perennial culture uh, just to kind of create a buffer from hunger. And so when the soil is gone and the and, and, and they're relying on annuals, they've lost the tradition of how to work with perennial systems, how to go into the, the woods and the jungles and find what they need. So this has been played out all over the world, all over Africa, you know, Asia, Southeast Asia, certainly all over Latin America, to where now we're at a point where the soil has been highly degraded and the cultural traditions of working with a diversified land system have been lost. So literally, you know, hunger is the norm in the world and it's growing. Uh, we don't feel the effect so much in, in North America. We're really in a bubble from it. But if you travel and you get out and go around the world, you will see the effects that we've already created on our planet, largely with soil loss and then also loss of tradition with more diverse systems. So we, we do have the ability to regenerate. If we, you know, do a combination of things. But, yeah. Uh, uh, very, very, uh, you know, interesting, but but also sad. And as you're talking, two things come to my mind. I recently saw a statistic. I wish I could remember it, but it talked about what percentage of the forests of the world have now been cut down, either for uh, the lumber industry, the farming industry, the cattle industry, etc. But it was very, very high. And, you know, Steiner talks about how different parts of the earth system are like organs and the uh, topsoil he describes as the stomach. Uh, he describes the topsoil as, as what he calls superficial digestion and the forests and the trees as, as the lungs of the planet. So two questions or one's a statement where we're kind of unconsciously growing these annual crops for cash crops, as you described without the awareness that we're dangerously reducing the amount of trees on the planet, which as most people know, are very important for providing oxygen. What people also are, aren't so aware of, and I'm sure you're aware of is that when we have trees and foliage, it uh, covers the earth and those plants and trees use sunlight to create photosynthesis. They grow root systems. They protect the earth. They support the retention of water, the, the maintenance of a more consistent temperature. And as we're uh, eroding the, the lungs of the planet and eroding the topsoil of the planet, we're 
basically changing the biodynamics, if you will, of the living system called Gaia. And I don't remember exactly, but you might know, what, what does it take something like a million years to create an inch of topsoil? <laughs> not not necessarily a million. And that's by natural you know, means. As humans, we can speed up topsoil regeneration you know, within a year or two. But yes, by natural terms, you're probably looking at hundreds of years to build back up what's lost you know, in a single rain event. Right. So one of the things I wanted to share, uh, because it leads to some other questions is in my library, I have a quite an interesting book called thoughts on feeding by LJ Picton, Faber and Faber, London, 1946. And in the book, he shares that by 1937, erosion by water and wind had claimed 250 million acres of the total land of the U S formerly under crops, 61% of the whole that was 1937. So when you consider that, uh, my understanding is that the degree of land destruction that he's talking about was created by monocropping and overexposure to machines because there wasn't that much chemical use at all in 1937. That didn't really start kicking off till after the Second World War where they figured out they could use munitions factories to create chemical fertilizers and keep the military industrial complex profitable. So where do you feel we're at today with regard to the loss of arable land in the United States with regard to the expansion of commercial farming and the use of farming chemicals since then? Uh, we've come a long way. We, we've lost an enormous amount uh, of our topsoil, which is really even in economic terms, you know, the platform that we're all standing on. So you could even take this, you know, more to a black and white reality of how we're operating day to day economically. Uh, you know, the topsoil is literally what we are based on. So it going downstream, literally, uh, if you look at the Mississippi River where it washes out, uh, down there in the Gulf, it's just a huge area. It's a, it's a big bloom of, of soil, basically. You can literally see how it's been washed out, lost. Um, yeah, and then you combine that with chemical use. You know, what's left is an infertile, uh, basically bedrock, you know, that you can't just jump back in on and start regenerating and growing food in a short amount of time. Uh, this is a pattern that's that's old, you know, uh, with the Mayans, the Mayan city states like Tikal, you know, uh, was purportedly up to a million people and it collapsed. And, and the largest understanding for that is just the exhaustion of the soil and the resources around it. And then the Romans as well. I think their you know, large reason for their empire was not being able to keep up with feeding everybody because of the loss of arable soil. So we're, we're doing the same thing that we've done historically. The difference is now that it's on a global scale uh, and the machinery and the chemicals that we use, uh, you know, have sped it up enormously. And yes, this reality of lost soil is going to begin to become more evident to everybody in our economics. Uh, it's already evident in the quality of our food. Um, you know, the insecurity of food access being grown at far distances but, you know, I think I think it's going to hit most people who aren't thinking agriculturally, environmentally. It's going to hit economically. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that, you know, it drives this whole commercial farming industry and the use of massive amounts of machinery and massive amounts of pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, rodenticides, or better known as the chemical industry, 
which, as I mentioned earlier, is an extension of the munitions industry in, in many ways, uh, is, is this whole concept that we have too many people on the planet and we can't produce enough food organically to feed the population. Yet in my years of research on these topics, traveling around the world, one of my hobbies is to find rare bookstores and search through them for interesting books of which I have a very large collection of really excellent books. One of the books I came across was published in 1911. It's called Farmers of 40 Centuries or Permanent Agriculture in China, Korea, and Japan by F.H. King, formerly professor of agricultural physics in the University of Wisconsin, Wisconsin and chief division of soil management. And he was the chief of, of the division of soil management of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Now, what's interesting about this book is one, it was published in 1911, but what they did was they kept getting reports of how much food the farmers that were considered to be very primitive and even backwards and often joked about by American farmers was how in the hell were these people producing so much food? I think China at the time, only 14% of its land mass was arable, but they have you know a very large population. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture wanted Dr. King to go investigate to find out how it is that they're able to feed all these people. The book is, is an expose of that, and it, it's too much to explain in, in this podcast, but it's pretty profound. <clears throat> but I want to share something right out of the book that makes a shocking point as a counter argument to this whole, what I believe to be cooked up idea for profit, reasons of profit is that the idea being that we can't feed enough, we can't feed the population without using chemical and, and commercial farming technologies. And I'm quoting directly from the book. Uh, While in the Shangtung province, and this is China, King visited a holding that was one and two thirds acres where the farmer had 10 in his family and was maintaining one donkey and one pig showing for his farm land and maintenance capacity of 3,840 people, 24 donkeys, and 384 pigs to the square mile. So what they're saying is that when they took what he was producing on one and two-thirds of an acre and said, well, if we gave this guy a square mile, how much food would he be able to produce? And he could feed... 3,840 people, 24 donkeys, and 384 pigs. Or comparatively, he could feed 240 people, 24 donkeys, and 24 pigs to one of our American 40-acre farms, which most farmers regard as too small for a single family. Yeah. So the crux, the crux of this is that there in China, they've been using – full circle, you know, growing systems, very much like biodynamics. You work, yeah. you work with whole farm systems where the animals, you know, are producing the manure and the compost, you know, it's feeding the soil, you're using, you know, lots of different preps, 
everything is cycling back into it. So it's a circular system, right? And everybody's involved. You know, there's a lot of labor. There's a lot of family. Everybody's involved in doing their part. And all of their manure, too, is getting cycled and used. That's a very valuable yeah, resource. And That's actually, I was, sorry, I was just going to bring, I don't mean to cut you off. I wanted to bring that up because I was sitting on that thought and you said exactly what I was thinking about. So you might be reading my mind. He he calls that in the book Midnight Soil, and he yeah. shows pictures of, of villages where they would collect their own poop and pile it up. It would look like just what I would have looked considered to be a compost pile on our farm. But today, research shows that if we started trying to compost human soil, we would destroy the topsoil because human feces is so toxic, it actually kills the beneficial microorganisms. Are you aware of that fact? Yes, but I would be interested in in using fungi to potentially, yeah. you know, break down a lot of those. I mean, I think it's a very valuable resource that that we will we do and we will need to come back to using. So I was I was going to juxtapose that circular system to our our linear system of agriculture, you know, we're bringing in these these chemical fertilizers and machinery and then, you know, we're exporting. So when you're you're farming a crop on the soil and you harvest it and you ship it away, you know, it's gone. Your fertility has left and then you bring in more artificial, you know, materials and it's linear. So it doesn't cycle back on itself, which basically means that, yeah, your soil and your fertility are leaving. Um, but I, I want one of my favorite parts of that book uh, is is when he tells the story about how along the along the roadways in China back in the day. I don't know if it's still there, but the farmers would build these really beautiful, you know, luxurious looking compost toilets, you know, at the roadside. You know, trying to attract travelers, you know, to come and make their, you know, their their deposits. <laughs> you know, I mean, what a turnaround is that? They were they were vying for it. That's great. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things you mentioned with the linear concept, you know, the linear, you know, you mentioned they had a circular system, which is it's a, it's it's like a, a it's a system that reinvests in itself. Mm-hmm. What we've got is kind of like. Um, it's like if you're a mother that buys diapers instead of washing your own diapers and reusing them, then every time you run out of diapers, you have to spend money, which means you have to go to, to work to make that money. Whereas if you're using cloth diapers and you're washing them, then you only have to really invest in the first uh, set of cloth diapers. But one of the research papers that was forwarded to me by Dave Murphy from Food Democracy Now! is a recently released scientific report that showed that something that they had no knowledge of till recently, and that was they used to think and, and were told by the uh, chemical fertilizer manufacturers that the NPK fertilizers broke down in the soil and didn't disrupt anything, but now they're finding all over the world that the NPK fertilizers are not breaking down and that they're sinking into the rocks in the uh, uh, undersoil. And they say that the level of NPK fertilizer that's now trapped and has been saturated into the rocks is so high that when some of these areas start getting big rains and it washes into the rivers and makes it to the ocean, it could literally wipe out the ecosystem in the ocean's and the rivers bringing that in there. Are you familiar with that? Absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm talking to you right now from the north shore of Oahu here in Hawaii, and it's just all dead reefs, 
you know, all along That's, the waterway here. And this largely from, you know, human activity. And I've been, you know, in sensitive reef systems and all around the world. And you do see the immediate impact of even low level uh, nutrient loads, you know, even just from, you know, sewage. So, yeah, what you're talking about is very devastational. Yeah. And it's, you know, this is people don't realize it, but if we don't wake up and start voicing our opinions and, and um, using our dollars to support small local farmers and doing the kinds of things we're talking about in this podcast, we're, we're headed for some kind of a, a, a nexus point or some kind of an omega point where life as we know it cannot go on. I mean, we got the Great Barrier Reef dying. You're talking about reefs dying there. We've got, you know, animal species and, and, and fish species uh, dying out like crazy. Uh, you see beached whales and, and uh, you know, reports of thousands of seals dying. And yeah. I've got uh, a report in my library from, uh, it was over on the East Coast of the United States. There was like 5,000 uh, sea lions, I believe it was, that were uh, dying like crazy, and they they uh, biologists did research. The marine biologists did research and found that they were all suffering from some kind of a viral infection that normally their immune systems can completely protect them against. But essentially, what they tracked it down to was all the hormones from industrial waste in the water in the ocean disrupting their immune modulation and immune function. And they were no longer able to protect themselves from things that normally they wouldn't have any problem with at all. So it's yeah. it's really a kind of uh, – it's almost like we're playing Russian roulette. We are. And if you add you know, genetically modified uh, organisms into that, we're messing with the, the, the actual fabric of our makeup. And yeah, nexus is a, is a nice metaphor. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's um, – you know, I'm sure you're probably familiar with the whole biohacking movement, aren't you? Yeah. Well, it really seems to me like the the concept of biohacking, you know, taking shortcuts is largely what it is to try to trick the body into doing things that it may not do otherwise instead of getting back to basics. I just did a podcast with Ben Greenfield and we got deep into the whole biohacking thing. But it seems like – it almost seems to me like we have this – teenage male spirit in science that has this urge to push the boundaries of everything to the very limit. Kind of like when you're 17 and you borrowed your mother's station wagon and little did she know you were out <laughs> burning the tires off of it and, you know, pushing it to the extremes. And it's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's how far can this little game go on? It's getting to be, well, it's getting to be dangerous enough that I want to talk to you about it and, and help people become more aware. One of the facts that I found in my research uh, when I was doing some writing a few years back is that uh, during the First and Second World War, they showed approximately 50% of the food eaten was grown in people's backyards. And that during these periods, there was not only a significant drop in disease rates, but that farming production in general went up significantly when the women took over farming because the men were off at war. And so this sort of plays into what we're coming to discuss here is that, you know, they, they had a choice, stand in bread lines or 
grow food in your backyard. And not only did the, you know, 50% of people, I mean, 50% of the food was started coming from backyards, but people started getting healthier because a lot of the, the garbage that they were normally eating, they, they couldn't get access to or didn't have the money to buy. So I found that really interesting. And go ahead. I was just going to, you know, it's, it's making me think of Cuba. Um, you know, Cuba was relying on oil from Russia and had developed their agriculture to be based on oil inputs, fertilizers, etc. And then, you know, in 1989, when the wall came down, uh, all of a sudden Cuba was shut off, you know, completely almost from, you know, that source of oil input. And of course, the U.S. wasn't supporting them. And they've been this little microcosm. Uh, you know, that has shown, you know, how they've shifted uh, from that intensive oil input system to creating, you know, urban agricultural programs um, all across the country. They all pulled together and started growing on whatever piece of ground they could. And by 1997, they were eating as well, if not better than they were previous to 1989. So there's, you know, this is an example that, yes, you know, we can do this. And it brings me back to, um, you know, talking about what you mentioned earlier, as far as it being a story that, that we can't feed the world. And that is a story. Uh, it is not true. We would have it's a for-profit story. <laughs> it's a for-profit story. Yes, yes. So we we absolutely can feed everybody. A lot of uh, we could do it now. The issue is distribution. Uh, it's not even production at this level. It's just not distributing it. And a lot of what keeps regions that are are productive in poverty also is just access to market. So the market's controlled, and really that's what's creating hunger. Not even you know not lack of production. It's just distribution and market access. Yeah, and and when you say distribution, you mean getting the food grown in point A to point B where somebody doesn't have so much food. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, in the current system, yes. Well, you know, personally looking at that, I think I mentioned to you earlier I, I uh, before we got went live is that I have uh, – a research paper that showed that the average tomato eaten in the United States has traveled 1,500 miles by uh, air, sea, or land before it reaches the your plate. And so because of the fact that we're still using an antiquated technology called oil and gasoline to move products or jet fuel um, – and that's a big part of the problem uh, for a number of reasons. But the it seems to me that really the only solution is to basically create support systems for a much more locally based uh, agriculture so that we have more a, a reliance on farmers markets and less reliance on Cargill and large organizations. I see that inevitable in the future. Uh, I look at the future a lot. I um, I'm 45. My my son is five, and when I look at what his life might be like when he's my age, 40 years from now, that gives me a lot of pondering. And I do see things becoming more regional. Um, you know, as oil, you know, peak peak quality oil. Quality oil is already peaked. You know, we're we're going after cheap oil now. 
So, yeah. you know, there's going to there's, there's gonna be this gradual uh, reduction and that's going to affect, you know, international movement, transportation. And so things are going to become more nationalized, which I think has a lot of benefits. I see a lot of positives to the things that are coming. You know, it's not all doom and gloom. I see us coming together, uh, you know, working together, communicating better together. And yes, working with, you know, the, the national food system and then regional food system. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think one thing that helps drive home the fact that our food's coming from far away is if you look at the farms around you, you know, they're typically growing, you know, huge fields of, you know, GMO soybeans and corn. And really, you keep looking around you, there's not a whole lot that's being grown to feed you in your vicinity, you know, your region no, at yeah. all. Um, so, you know, to me, that gives me a real sense of insecurity. That makes me very uncomfortable, especially when I'm living in populous areas like I do in the mid-Atlantic. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Uh, you know, I'm 57 and my son, Mana, will be three. My first son, Paul Jr., is 39 Mana will be three in February, and we have a new one on the way who should be arriving in July, I believe. Us too. Oh, right on. So, you know, I've I've talked to Penny and Angie about this uh, because I'm, you know, I I, I look at the changes. I mean, when I was a kid, there wasn't even fax machines yet. Um, I've seen the development of faxes, uh, cell phones, computers. And, you know, as you know, technology is, is speeding up faster and faster and faster. And I was saying to the, the, the ladies, I was saying, you know, our kids could see more change in the first 20 years of their life than I've seen in my entire lifetime. And some of it ain't going to be pretty. And it, it's definitely a concern to me. It, it, really, it really is a deep concern of mine. Well, and um, – well, you know, this this is you know this is a rabbit hole. I've I've spent a lot of time uh, going down and playing out future scenarios. So, uh, an interesting resource that's very helpful for this is a book by David Holgram. Uh, David is the co-founder of the Permaculture Movement uh, and is is alive and very strong uh, in the movement still. He's in Australia, and he wrote uh, a small book. Uh, called Future Scenarios, where he's juxtaposing potential outcomes based on peak oil and climate change. And he points out this is what the big corporations do as well. So the big corporations will scenario plan so that they're in position to deal with whatever set of circumstances might come. Uh, so I highly recommend that book uh, just to get just to get the you know just to get your mind thinking about uh, you know potentialities and then what would you do you know or how would you prepare yourself best uh, you know, depending on what plays out. So I spent a long time uh, really kind of looking at all of this and for me, my life, uh, it's come down to to focusing on planting nut trees. Trees in general, but nut trees, because when you look at what created stability and food security uh, throughout most of North America, certainly continental North America, uh, the Native Americans would would rely heavily on nut trees. And similar to the Mayans, they would work with the forests in selecting, um, you know, the nut trees. They would some some of the cultures would burn the understory around the nut trees. Uh, the, the nuts would draw in the wildlife. 
The burned understory would also allow them to hunt more easily. So literally, they were able to make it through winters, you know, relying heavily on nuts uh, for them and for the wildlife they brought in. And when I look at the future and I see a lot of glitches potentially happening, I'm like, well, what can I do to secure, you know, something? And to me, it's, it's, it's kind of boiled down to planting nut trees. And so that's my focus. And that's, that's, that's the best answer I've come up with, because I don't think in 40 years, you know, it's, I'm going to be looking back if I'm still alive or my son and saying, man, what was he thinking, wasting his time doing this and that? But, you know, if, if I plant nut trees, I feel like I'm pretty safe. Well, I think that's very important. Um, you know, uh, nuts also store very well. So yes. There's a benefit to that. And um, one of the things I wanted to get you to do, and I forgot to do that earlier, could you define permaculture for the listeners and, and share what's the difference between permaculture, if there is any, and what people just consider organic farming uh, in general? Sure. All right. The, the elevator pitch for permaculture is uh, permaculture um, is a way to consciously design landscapes, uh, which mimic the patterns and relationships found in nature. That's a mouthful. Um, it's, it's, let's, let's clear. Yeah, okay. It's a holistic approach uh, to landscape design that brings gardening, forestry, alternative energy, natural building, uh, and socioeconomic realities together into designs that then loop together. You know, that, 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 that work like natural eco ecosystems do. They feed themselves. Sort of like what we were talking about with that full circle. Uh, you, you, if yeah. you put the design in place with as many considerations as possible, it will then start to function on its own. So it has, over time, it has very low maintenance. You know, there's input time and design up front. And then if you do it right and you design, you know, your systems and your landscapes well, then they will function for themselves. Uh, and there's and it, it does work. Uh, I've been absolutely amazed uh, with the systems that I've put in place and then uh, literally been, been pulled away and they've thrived with neglect. Uh, so, uh, yeah. yeah, and I, th I think that's always a good, uh, a good design consideration, especially in our busy world is designed for neglect, you know, put things in place with, you know, with the concept that they will be neglect or they will receive harsh conditions and, and they will still thrive. They're not high input. I think that's a very important point, uh, for, for one reason in particular, because most people, I think associate the concept of having a garden with a lot of work and they're having a hard time finding time to breathe and to live with the way our economy's designed and, and all those types of issues, as you know. But when you're talking about a, a permaculture or, or your edible landscape systems, if they're developed right in the first place, they are fairly low maintenance. And, and, you know, having studied a lot of Steiner's work, there's a lot of very direct parallels between permaculture design and what Steiner developed as biodynamic farming. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we've we've inherited sort of this Victorian-esque uh, concept of gardening, uh, which somehow seems to say that that if you're not working hard – you know, you're not doing something right in the garden. And, and that's, to me, that's BS. I mean, if you've got a lot of time and a small patch to play around with, then, then yeah, you know, knock yourself out. 
But, you know, if you want to be, you know, being productive and moving on and doing other things in your life, you know, design systems, yeah, that are going to feed themselves. Uh, and yeah, biodynamics, you know, works on a lot of the same principles, you know, a lot of permaculture pulls from a lot of these wisdoms, really, you know, permaculture is indigenous knowledge, you know, applied to the modern world and realities. One of the th- things I took a note while you were talking earlier, but I, I wanted to just wait for a time to interject in it before we get too far from the topic, because the use of oil and energy is obviously heavily involved in issues of farming and our economy. One of the things that's sad for me is I've got a couple of great books in my library looking at all the various patents on free energy technologies and the work of Tesla and others. And it's it's just a sad fact that we don't need to be using oil at all. We could completely, between hemp products and the various free energy technologies and Tesla type technologies, and now with research into zero point field energy technologies, we could move past all this. But there's uh, many, many cases on record of patents being uh, taken away from inventors of these devices all of a sudden disappearing off the face of the earth or them being found dead with suicide notes and the family saying there's no possible way this guy committed suicide. He was way, way too involved in his family, his life and his work. Um, but really what it all boils down to is large corporations um, that are making so much money off the oil industry, suppressing the use of any of these types of technologies would be far, far better for the environment and also ultimately would create a, an entire shift in the way we we our economy functions yeah um, you know we we were doing pretty good before all the oil you know came along as well if you think about it worldwide uh, compared to what's happening today and yeah I, I i've lived many many years without electricity uh, I've lived without refrigeration. I have had running water. That that has been a key, I will admit. But gravity fed. Uh, really, we, we we don't need these these uh, these high inputs as much as we think. You know, we've kind of become attached to them, and I think we become fearful about them being reduced or taken away. But you know, I, I, we will be fine. You know, uh, in my research, I looked at uh, over the years. I looked at the work of. Um Major General Robert McCarrison, are you familiar with his research that he was tasked to do by the British military? No. no. Well, during the First and Second World War, it got worse in the Second World War, but they had, uh, I think it was something like 47% in the First World War. It's 50 to 51% of the recruits in the Second World War were rejected due to being unfit for military duty due to malnutrition and various health problems. So the British government saw this as a threat to national security because, you know, they were drafting people between 17 and 25 years of age, and that's supposed to be the healthiest males of any culture. So they tasked uh, Major General Robert McCarrison, chief of uh, medicine, if I remember his title correctly, to find out who the healthiest people in the world were and to study their diets and do research to see if we could figure out how to better feed the population to create more security in case there was another war, which we better hope there isn't. But uh, Robert McCarrison at that time, and this is, oh, I don't know what the years were, but it's you know right around the time of the Second World War, 
found that the Hunzas of, uh, I believe it's northern India, if I remember right, were the healthiest people they could find. So what he did is he, he his research papers outline his research, and he took uh, 1,600 rats, and he fed them the exact diet of the Hunza. And then he took 1,600 rats and fed them a diet modeled on the middle class of England. And after two years of uh, rat life, I mean, two, two human years, which is a, a pretty long span for a rat. I don't remember the exact correlation. What he found was that there was no death, uh, uh, no disease death at all amongst the rats living on the Hunza diet. Uh, the only death was an occasional maternal death where a mother laid on one of her babies and suffocated or something like that. With the rats eating the English diet, by day 16 of the experiment, they became so violent, he had to separate them into separate cages. And at the end of the experiment, when he analyzed the rats on the English diet, and did, he did a medical-grade autopsy on every single rat in the study. Interestingly, when he analyzed the diseases in the rats, they broke down into three categories which not only were the exact three categories of the most common diseases in England and Wales, but in almost the identical proportions. Mm. I can relate. I uh, grew up in the Midlands of England in the late seventies and early eighties and the food was horrible. Um, yeah. yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. It's correlated, you know, obviously our diet and our landscapes, you know, what we eat on our plate is what our landscapes look like. So as long as we're, you know, stuck on this annual diet, you know, our landscapes are going to continue and annual cropping is what's losing the soil the quickest. You know, we're turning the soil, we're keeping it exposed, you know, we're killing it and really a largely, you know, because of our annual agriculture, which affects our bodies. Well, yeah. It does. And in fact, in my holistic lifestyle coaching program, I, I took a page out of the natives playbook and created teaching songs because, you know, the written language is fairly new. And a lot of the great teachers of antiquity didn't want students writing things down because they felt that it, they started uh, worshiping more the symbols they were using and less the experience they were supposed to be having. So for each of the four doctors, I created a song and I'm going to sing the song for uh, Dr. Diet because it has a lot of key points in it. Dr. Diet, build your temple, a body for your mind. We raise and eat our food with love. It makes our chemistry. Add good water and a smile. Be filled with energy. Eat good organics and be wise. You are what you eat. Eat good organics and be wise. You are what you eat. You are what you eat. Yum, yum. So in that song is actually the essentials that everybody needs to know about diet. And the reason I had to put the word eat good organics is because now we have almost 100 organic certifiers, 95% of, percent of which or more are bogus. And my research showed that the reason there's so many studies appearing uh, on television and in um, journals saying that there's no difference between commercial and organic farm or organically farmed food is because the large food conglomerates are now creating all these fake organic certifications. They're funding the agricultural programs. And so they send in their so-called organic food and have it compared to the commercial food, which 
both of them are grown by the same organizations, just that the so-called organics are grown under shell companies under different names. And so they produce this research showing there's no difference in the two to diminish people's interest in organic food so that they're not pressured to start farming organically, which is a, you know, a bit of a problem. That's a big problem. And when you realize that, you know, Walmart is the largest distributor of organic food, that pretty much sums it up. And yeah, you can't. You, yeah, yeah, dangerous. Yeah, you can't trust. You, you can't trust. You, you have to have, you have to know, really know where your food is coming from, really know the source. And that's why I tell people, look, you know, organic farming certifications are fairly expensive for a small farmer. You know, some of these guys are only making 35,000 bucks a year out of which they have to run their farm and everything else. So if you're paying six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand for a, a legitimate certification, but there's not enough appreciation for it to make it a, 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 a good financial investment, then they end up farming often organically, but not selling, not labeling their food organic. But when you go to small farmers markets, of which most cities have, you can find all sorts of excellent food that was either grown with no chemicals or very minimal chemicals that has a much higher nutrient value than anything you can buy in the supermarket. Yeah, a lot of times you'll see signs that just say beyond organic, and meaning that they're not messing with the organic certification, but they, they practice, uh, you know, good practice, good organic practices. Yeah, just to make a point of, of uh, how powerful even a small percentage of your diet is organic food can be. When I was doing research on all these issues we're talking about, I, I became a member of the British Soil Association, which has really a great library of all sorts of research on food and farming and everything that we're talking about here. Uh, from my looking into soil, associ soil associations all over the world, I found the British Soil Association to to really be a rich resource. And I found uh, an investigation that looked at the sperm counts of males and they went all the way back to 1938. And I'm, I'm just recalling from memory. So I don't want anyone to quote these statistics exactly, but they're close enough. I think at, at around 1938, the average male was ejaculating about 100, 138 million sperm per ejaculation or something like that. And then when they did the research, uh, the average male was down to something like 67 million. So uh, very, very reduced. And then what they did is they put them on, uh, they put one group of men on a 25% organic diet, another group on a 50% organic diet, and then a 100% organic diet. And they found that, uh, if I remember right, even eating, well, even 25% made a significant jump in the sperm count 50%, I think, brought them back up to about where the males in 1938 were on average, but 100% organic diet uh, gave even more improvement. And one of the reasons I'm citing that now is because, as you probably are very aware, in vitro fertilization and problems of, of men and women not being able to uh, get pregnant. I mean, uh, the woman gets pregnant, of course, but we have men with such low sperm counts, they can't get their wives pregnant. And we have women who just can't get pregnant because their physiology is so out of whack. And a lot of this just tracks right down to diet and lifestyle factors. And, you know, when I see how much organic food Penny can grow in the backyard and two bed gardens and, and, a, and probably a half a dozen pots, 
And it's like she's pulling squash out of there, peppers, all sorts of stuff. It's just like amazing. It's like uh, Christmas. And, 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 you know, it's great to take my little boy out there and show him the stuff. And, and so that's leading me to a question. Um, I know you specialize in teaching people how to make food for us. And that's what your book is about. What, what is, what's a rough idea of the kind of production someone could get in a sort of a standard backyard space? Well, that's a that's a loaded question. Um, it, it really depends on 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 your approach. Uh, I would say, from a gardening standpoint, uh, it's been proven by biointensive methods, uh, particularly one one man uh, named John Jevons, uh, who who's written a wonderful book that I recommend for people who really have never grown anything and want just to start to begin working and growing vegetables. Uh, and I believe his book's called How to, how, you know, how to Grow Vegetables. Uh, I'll have to double check that here. Um, but anyway, he has a very intensive system of spacing and, you know, has been able to prove, you know, roughly that on, a, you know, maybe like a quarter of an acre, uh, a vegetarian diet can feed, you know, almost a, a family of four. So really a very small area can be very productive. A couple other friends of mine, uh, Eric Tonsmeyer and Jonathan Bates, have created a food forest in their small one-tenth of an acre uh, duplex backyard in Massachusetts and have created a cornucopia of food and medicinals and plants. And they wrote about it in a book called Paradise Lot, uh, a wonderful read uh, and really shows the potential how you take, you know, what was a terrible little uh, you know, duplex backyard, even with a large maple tree in it, and how they made it productive. So, you know, space is not not really you know the limiting factor. It's you know how you stack your systems, and we can go into that in different ways. I'll let you decide. Well, I know from Steiner's work um, and working with uh, there's a. A guy in, in in our area here, San Diego, named Robert Farmer, who is a biodynamic farmer. And for part of the research from my holistic lifestyle coaching program, uh, Dr. Cliff Oliver, who used to teach my courses with me, went him and I went out to a large organic uh, community-supported agricultural farm that he was uh, the director of. And so we uh, looked into all sorts of these types of issues, and he was showing, you know, how by putting certain plants together and even animals and plants together, that it becomes a, a self-sustaining system. And even, you know, he, he explained how they use things like um, clover and other things to create green manuring so that they let it grow and plow under to re-mineralize uh, the soil and all sorts of, of, you know, techniques that people can use to make it more sustainable. But it's a it's a departure from the the kind of standard garden concept where you plant just carrots or just tomatoes or just this or just that and you have a row of this and a row of that it, it looks it almost looks much more like a a wild situation like you'd see in the forest you know yeah and and that's a great model and that can be done small scale you know with rabbits and chickens you know if you've got a small area small backyard where you're creating that fertility and then it can really get amped up into what's called silvo pastoral uh, agroforestry which is basically using tree crops uh, you know nut trees fruit trees 
and growing them in sort of a, almost an orchard-like pattern. But then in between your rows, you know, you're, you're running your animals, you know, that are going through helping the system pulse by eating, you know, the grasses and helping that soil and the roots pulse, leaving their manure. So there's ways to stack these systems together, whether they're small or large. But yes, the animals, uh, their nutrients, and again, our nutrients uh, are needed in, in these systems. Yeah. You know, one of the thing people spend just huge amounts of money on today, as I'm sure you know, is supplements, the majority of which are created from commercially farmed produce that are loaded with potentially, well, certainly not potentially, certainly toxic uh, stabilizers and other non-beneficial agents. To men- And also the fact is that you cannot extract, you cannot get the toxins from pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and rodenticides out of the commercially grown crops that ultimately become the the product in the bottles that we call supplements. So when it comes to someone who maybe is caught in this sort of, well, the if I just take these pills, I'll be o- okay. What are some of the best medicinal or nutritional herbs people can grow at home in these sort of small bed gardens or apartment balconies or uh, any of the kind of miniaturized home gardening systems. One of my favorite and the favorite of many permaculturists is a plant called comfrey. And com- oh, yeah. yes. I comfrey know. used to be known as knit bone. Uh, the, old, the old monasteries would grow yeah. it uh, so that when wayward travelers uh, would come along with, with broken and busted up limbs and bruises, they would be able to heal them uh, quite quickly with the comfrey. And I, I personally use comfrey every day as a medicinal. Uh, so it's a beautiful plant, vigorous grower. Uh, a lot of the varieties have a very deep taproot. So it goes deep into the soil and is be able to you know pull up minerals and nutrients and it brings it up into these beautiful large deep green lobed leaves um, that are that are very medicinal. We, I mean, I take the leaf internally. Uh, there's been some some BS research, uh, you know, on rats where they just you know fed them an insane amount and said that it's not good. But whereas traditional herbology has used comfrey leaf internally, you know, for for eons. So I, I like to also use it as a salve. So I will I will take the root and the leaf. I will chop it up and put it in olive oil for about three or four weeks. I'll strain that out and I'll make a salve with a little bit of beeswax and vitamin E, a little bit of lavender oil. And I'll just make, you know, jars of that and put that, you know, my five-year-old kid's a, a real, real rocket ship too. So he and I are always getting hurt. So it, it is, it is one of my very, very favorite herbs. Uh, it, it grows quickly, abundantly. If you, if you don't think you have a green thumb, uh, start with comfrey. It'll, it'll encourage you. Um, Plant it where you want it to stay. Uh, you know, you don't want to try and move it around. If you cut the root up, it will spread. I like to mix it up with my perennials. I plant it around my fruit trees, my nut trees, my bushes, uh, because those deep green leaves that are pulling up minerals from the subsoil are then mulching the topsoil around the plants and also feeding the plants. So it's a it's a win win, right. um, you know, for for humans and plants alike. So that's that's always one of my favorite go tos. Um, I have a, a quick comfrey story to tell you before you rush to the next yeah. uh, uh, herb. Uh, 
when I was 15, I was doing some cliff diving at a real dangerous place that only a few people go to. But, uh, you know, being a 15-year-old with a lot of testosterone, if my buddies could do it, I had to do it. So it was a place where there was a sharp bend in a river and you had to have a scout watching because in the summer they do a lot of people coming down the river in kayaks uh, and on big inner tubes and things. And the river is moving so fast if you're not careful um, because you have to run real fast for about 50 yards because to get in, it was called the deep hole. And to get into the deep part of the river, you got to clear about a 15 foot granite ledge that extends out into the river. And my scouter waved to me, but all of a sudden he screams at me and says to stop, but I'm like five feet from the edge of the cliff. And it's a, a the whole cliff's made of red clay. And, and because we'd been going back and forth for like a half an hour and our bathing suits were all dripping wet. When I went to try to stop, I couldn't stop. I just slid and I got right to the edge of the cliff and I was teetering and I realized that I was going to go over. So I just jumped as hard as I could and I made it just far enough that my right leg cleared the ledge. But my left leg caught the ledge and fractured my left leg in five places. And, and I had a compound fracture and the tibia shot right out through the skin. It was a really nasty thing. But anyhow, um, one of my mother, my, our family uh, business is, is wool and we had a woolen factory. And so we did a lot of work with all the Native American Indians in the area, selling them wool for the arts and crafts trade on Vancouver Island. And my mother just happened to mention to one of these ladies, you know, that had this bad fracture. And she, she said, oh, you need to get them on comfrey tea. It's called bone knit tea. So I think she gave some to my mother and my mother bought a bunch of it. Well, f the, you know, the, the doctor told me I would probably have to be in that cast for about four months because it was a very nasty multiple break. I went back for my four week checkup and I was probably drinking three or four cups of comfrey tea a day. And the doctor was literally in shock. He said, I've never seen anybody heal this quick before in my entire career as an orthopedic surgeon from a break like that. What in the hell have you been doing? And really all I'd been doing was drinking comfrey tea and, you know, of course, eating the food off of our farm. But he ended up taking my cast off after I think maybe a little bit over four weeks. And uh, I ended up hurting myself again, doing skateboard stunts and motorcycle tricks. But the point is that my, as soon as you said comfrey, I'm like, oh yes, I know all about comfrey tea. It, 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 it is one of the truly most effective plant uh, herbs that I've ever seen and work with. I, I broke two toes last week on some coral. I was running after my son. Ouch. Yeah, I crunched them and, and I had my comfrey salve. And I just laid up and, and lathered a minute. And a week later, I'm walking again. I'm hobbling, but my toes look so much better. And I tell you, if I hadn't had that comfrey, I bet you they'd, I bet they, I bet I would not be walking yet. So I, I, I really do stand by it because I've seen how fast and effective, you know, a lot of herbs, it's like, yeah, they, they get, they get all these big claims, but not much happens uh, with comfrey. You, you know, you, something will happen. You will heal much, much faster. Um, you know, what's another great one in that same vein uh, is horsetail. 
it's 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 a running plant. It likes wet areas, uh, but you could probably do it in a pot culture as well. And it's high in silica and calcium, so you could make like a calcium. You can make a horsetail comfrey tea to heal bones and heal things really quickly. So uh, I'm a big fan of that. Uh, just know that it could spread. Um, another one of my favorites is nettles. So, yeah, okay. nettles is an amazing powerhouse, uh, again, full of lots of minerals. Uh, we grow a lot of it. It grows as a patch or you could grow it in pots. You could grow all these things in pots. Uh, if you have a limited space and you're in an apartment uh, or you don't have ground to stick things in, you can do pot culture. Uh, the, the trick with pot culture usually is to set it up on a drip irrigation, which is very, very simple. Um, mm-hmm. an, an outfit. Uh, called DripWorks. So DripWorks.com has simplified uh, pot growing for people by having these little simple systems that you put on a timer and will maintain the moisture for you. Because typically when you grow in pots, uh, they dry out and they're, you know, they're better suited to drought tolerant Mediterranean herbs. Uh, but if you put a little drip system on them, you could do, you know, you could do comfrey, you could do the horsetail, you could do the nettles. Uh, and these are copious producing plants. So it's one of the things I like about them. You know, they're easy to grow. Come back to that neglect idea, designed for neglect. So nettles, uh, every spring we're in Maryland where we live and we have food forests and, and I'll explain a little bit about that in a minute. But uh, in the early spring, we make what we call food forest pesto. Uh, and it's the uh, largely based on the nettles, uh, the comfrey and young horseradish leaves. Some of the Egyptian walking onions are coming up and, you know, we'll just blend all that together and, make our make our you know food force pesto and it's a reboot it's a mineral reboot to the system every season i'll for like three days i'll eat nothing but uh food force pesto and the minerals from the nettles really recharge your system this is what traditional cultures always did uh yeah you don't you don't have to rely on the supplements if you're eating you know the foods that are pumping around you they're so much better yeah um how about oregano? Uh, is it, I mean, I, I know I use oregano oil and oregano is uh, a very powerful herb. Is that an easy one Absolutely. to grow? Absolutely. Very, very tough. Very, very drought tolerant too. So you could put that in a pot and forget about watering it and it would be fine. Um, and, you know, herb spirals too, you know, well, we're going to get, we're going to get around to that, I think, because um, it's got stones in it. And I know you want to talk about stones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and, 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 my next kind of step I wanted to go into is one, I wanted to create a little bit of awareness uh, on, on the issue of, of topsoil and the microorganisms, you know, the chemical industry has done a very good job of kind of blinding people to the amazing network of microorganisms in the soil and all the amazing things they do. And I won't go into all the science on that here because it'll make a long segue. And I do talk all about that for those that are interested in my, uh, DVD or video program called Nutrition, the Dirt Facts. But, um, you know, uh, when we look at the humus content, humus being the dead organic matter, for those that aren't familiar with the term, uh, and what healthy organic soil has or out in nature in the forest, it's generally 4 to 6% is considered ideal. But research shows that most commercially farmed soils range between zero 
and 1.5% humus. The reason I'm bringing that up is because in her book, um, Lady Eve Balfour's book, The Living Soil and the Holly Experiment. Are you familiar with that book? Uh, only, only marginally. Yeah, it's an amazing book. You know, she, she is one of the pioneers of the term organic and, uh, did extensive research on organic food and farming and its effect on people and animals. And it's a, it's a mind blowingly good book. It's, uh, called, uh, the living soil and the holly H A U G H L E Y experiment originally published in 1943. She describes in the book how one cubic foot of humus will hold 60 pounds or about seven gallons of water. And when we were talking earlier about the destruction of land and runoff, and we have a lot of problems with, uh, you know, water shortages in places all over the world. One of the things that I find frustrating as a guy who's researched all this stuff is that government agencies seem to just turn a blind eye to this whole destruction of the microorganisms and, and not caring for the topsoils. Yet in national parks, uh, for example, I was on vacation. Uh, Penny and I were on vacation one year and we went to a park in, um, uh, where was it? In Arizona, um, maybe Flagstaff, Arizona, I think. And I'm walking around in the park and they had these signs posted up at regular intervals. And I'm going to read you the sign. Now, the sign shows a picture of a like a hiker's boot and his heels touching the ground. And underneath it, there's just all sorts of little tiny microorganisms freaking out like, don't step on me, don't step on me. And this is what the sign says. Now, this is a U.S. government sign. At first glance, the desert topsoil looks like an old dry crust. Take a closer look. It's alive, exclamation. That lumpy black crust is actually a living web of bacteria, moss, lichen, fungus, and liverworts. Microbiotic crust controls erosion, stores water, uh, fertilizes the soil, and provides seed beds for plants, uh, seed beds for all plants from the from uh, wildflowers to trees don't bust the crust stay on the so on the trail one foot can crush a decade's worth of growth and when i saw that sign i took a picture of that and i said penny look at this 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 is the kind of silliness that drives me nuts because they're willing to tell you the truth in a park but they're not willing to tell you the truth about what we're doing to the entire planet with commercial farming and poisoning the topsoil and destroying the microorganism populations. But the point I'm driving at is as we reduce the humus content in the soil or the organic material in the soil, we have lots of problems with water wastage, water runoff, soil erosion. And I noticed that you have a chapter devoted to rainwater harvesting swalls or catchment areas uh, in your book. Could, could you share some thoughts on what we can do in general to reduce water wastage and what people living in areas where there's water shortages can do to capture more water for personal consumption in their gardens or for their garden? Right, right. You know, a lot of people have rain barrels um, that in a good rain will fill up oftentimes in two or three minutes and then they overflow and that water's, that water's heading off. Whereas if you shape your land, if you shape the landscape to harvest that water, it passively 
comes into the soil and is held there like a big sponge. Now, most of our landscapes are sort of sloped to move water away as fast as possible. So you take the typical suburban yard. It's a slope and there's usually a ditch at the bottom before the road. And it's off contour, which means that it's shooting water away as fast as possible. So rain falls on the house, rain falls on the driveway. It goes across the grass. It's got chemicals from the roof. It's got chemicals from the cars in the driveway. It's probably picking up chemicals on the lawn. And it's shooting away as fast as possible into the watershed, right? This is our typical design. So what we can do is we can start to create, you know, swales. Uh, You could think of them as ditches on contour, which means that they're perfectly perpendicular to the slope. So let's say down 20 feet from your downspout. You dig out a basin and you put that soil on the downhill side to create a berm, a raised bed, right? I then usually fill that basin in with wood chips or something. So as that water is coming down off the roof, it falls into that basin. And since it's on contour, it's not shooting the water anywhere. It stops and 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 it infiltrates into the groundwater. And it's held there and it's filtered and it's cleaned. And then things growing on that berm just go bonsai. They grow amazingly because they have that berm gives them a little bit of aeration, yet they have access to all that water. It's an amazing win-win scenario where I would say for a large majority of my clients and designs, especially in suburban and on large tracts of land, you know, contouring the land is one of the key elements to regenerating the soil uh, and harvesting the water. So, yes, and, and this can be done on all types of landscapes. Wherever, If you have an opportunity to sink water, in permaculture, we talk about slowing, sinking, and spreading water. Uh, you want to be able to try and hold on to that as much as possible. And rain gardens, uh, swales on contour are, are a variation of a rain garden. Uh, there's another practice called hugel culture beds. Uh, hugel culture is an old Germanic word, basically meaning um, soil covered, I mean, sorry, uh, wood covered with soil. So it's taking prunings and, you know, other organic matter that might typically leave your site and it's covering it with soil. You're basically creating compost in place. It's working with what elements are there to work with and not exporting them, sinking them and using them. So there's a lot of um, techniques, even for small urban areas. Uh, Rainwater Harvesting for Dry Lands and Beyond, a book by Brad Lancaster, is Amazing, and will give you concepts for all types of landscapes. Uh, you know, for people listening to the podcast, many of which maybe aren't gardeners or are minimal gardeners, I just want to say that Michael's book has lots of excellent pictures, and it's a really beautiful, glossy, full color. It's an absolutely gorgeous book, Michael. I must say, this this is a, I mean. This book makes me want to go get in the garden. Penny can tell you, you know, I grew up on a farm. So there's a couple of things that I kind of stay away from. One is anything that's like farming work and two, washing dishes because we had a big family. And one day we had guests over for dinner and (laughs) it was, (coughs) excuse me, it was a neighbor, the, the the neighbor from the farm next door. And, uh, after the dinner, he, he looks at my mom and dad as they're telling us to wash the dishes and we all have that look like, oh God, you know, there's a mountain of dishes and stuff all over the kitchen. 
And the guy looks at my dad and he says, why don't you buy a dishwasher with this many kids in such a big family? And my dad looks at him and says, I have five of them. And he pointed to us. (laughs) But uh, the point I'm making is, is that uh, Michael's book not only shows you how to do this, but it's easy to follow. I mean, you could, anybody I think could follow your book. It's very, very well done. The, and I'm thank you also for sharing all the references because our, our uh, podcast staff will, will put a reference list together. Uh, they'll go through the podcast and pull all these out. But if you uh, can remember any of them off the top of your head and want to, want to share it with us, that's great too. The next thing I wanted to talk to you about, I think is really hot topic right now. Uh, Joe Rogan had a podcast with Paul Stamets, one of the world's top, probably the world's top mycologists. And that created a huge awareness around the medicinal and psychedelic benefits of mushrooms, the nutritional benefits of mushrooms. And you talk about that in your book. Can you share uh, what any of us can do for ourselves, either by consuming various mushrooms or growing our own? And how hard is it to grow it mushrooms? It is very, very easy to work and grow mushrooms, uh, even inside an apartment. Uh, if you have a, you know, an outside area as well, they're very easy to grow. Uh, it's is it's one of the things that I do a lot of workshops on. Sometimes I feel I feel almost guilty doing you know having people pay me to do a workshop because it's really so easy. But doing it helps uh, realize that. And yeah, one of the chapters in my books about how to grow mushrooms outdoors. Now, the distinction here is that these these types of mushrooms are grown outdoors versus a lot of cultivated mushrooms are grown indoors and in sterilized conditions. Uh, and, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of the mushrooms that grow in those conditions kind of taste that way. Uh, like they were, they were grown on yeah. salt, sterilized sawdust blocks in a warehouse. Uh, you're not, you're, yeah, you're, kind of yeah, mealy, mealy and Yeah, you're tasting. missing the natural elements in those from growing outside. Whereas if you grow mushrooms on logs, like oak logs or poplar logs, maple logs, uh, you know, you can grow some of the most delicious and some of the most medicinal mushrooms. I mean, shiitakes are very medicinal. Uh, you know, I, I try to eat mataki, yeah. you know, sorry, shiitakes every day um, as part of my diet and part of my, my medicine. Uh, and they, they're, damn oh, they're good so too. good. And when you grow them on logs outside, they are exquisite uh, because they're out in the elements. They're getting the natural cycles of life. And of course, we've been able to gather over the centuries some of the best strains of, you know, of, say, shiitakes. So you're getting the best of, of the wild, um, you know, at home. So basically, my, you know, my pattern is that I will cut wood while it's dormant. And this is kind of a positive, too, because our forests generally have been cut, clear cut many times, and they regenerate uh, in, a, in a very crowded way. A bunch of saplings come up. Right. So to help to help right. sort of bring that mature canopy about again, uh, you can go in and you can thin these saplings. So you can play a positive forestry role while you're getting your wood, right? Or if you or if you have a tree, right. your neighbor's tree, or somebody down the street's doing tree work, ideally you're cutting, you're getting that wood when it's dormant. Um, so I do that in our neck of the woods around late February, early March. I'll let the wood sit, you know, uh, for about a month, and then as temperatures warm up, about fifty degrees during the day, then I'll get um, what we call spawn, and usually that's little wooden dowels or sawdust that have mycelium on it, little thread-like white right. cells. 
and I'll inoculate. I'll drill the log and I'll inoculate into that and I'll put a little, you know, beeswax over it. And then I'll store that log in a shady place behind a bush that gets rained on. And I'll basically forget about it and come back a year later and keep an eye on it, and it'll start flushing mushrooms. Um, and depending on the size of the log, it'll do that for five to eight years with me doing nothing more except for harvesting it. But you're you're putting the culture in yourself, Yes, that's correct? inoculated uh, with the spawn, little dowels or sawdust. Uh, it's really kind of fun. You know, it's kind of like whack-a-mole, you know, at the fair. Uh, yeah, I'm just saying that because, as as you know very well, a lot of mushrooms are poisonous, so if you just – take a chunk of wood and throw it in your backyard <laughs> and then eat whatever pops up. You might not be doing yourself yes, any favors. Yeah. And uh, 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 yeah, go ahead. How, how much wood does it take? I mean, one of the things I've noticed is we get firewood here for the winter. I mean, I'm in San Diego, so our winter is not very wintry compared to most places. I mean, I grew up on Vancouver Island. This is our winter is like a beautiful warm day compared to what I grew up in. But, um, I noticed that uh, like one one couple of years, I haven't used all the firewood. I just didn't. I buy I buy a cord of wood, and then a third of the cord would end up just sitting there. And I noticed that was within a year, within one season, from through the summer and back, it was already growing mushrooms all yeah, over. So it. there's there's any, yeah. So, go ahead. So you couldn't you just go like if if someone just bought some firewood and just did what you said, wouldn't that be pretty much just as easy? If the firewood was cut dormant from healthy living trees. So there's always ambient fungi. As soon as temperatures get above 50 degrees or so, there's ambient fungi. It's on your shirt. It's on your hat. I mean, we're all carrying it around, right? So it's everywhere. So if you have wood that's out there, fungi are going to land on it and begin, you know, consuming it because that's what they do. They're eating the, the cellulose and the woody material, the lignin. And so, mm-hmm. no, you do not want to grab an old piece of wood uh, because it probably already has a different fungi in it. And one of the beauties of growing your own mushrooms is the safety. You know, you know that you inoculated that with shiitake. And even if you've never grown a mushroom before, a sh- you know, a description of a shiitake is pretty clear and the picture is clear. You know, so you go up to your mushroom yeah. log and when the mushroom's popping out, you take a picture of a shiitake and you say, oh, yeah, that's shiitake. If it's some funky orange polka dot mushroom, no, you don't eat it. But you know what you're supposed to be getting, yeah. you know, from that log. So it, it does take away a lot of that that danger of, um, you know, wild harvesting. Yeah, and I know Paul Stamets sells uh, all sorts of fungal spores for doing this type of stuff. Yes. Uh, at, I think it's fungi.com. I, think, I, I can't remember. I think it's fungi.perfecti. Um, and yes, Paul Stamets is the guru, man. I, I think, I think he's part fungi himself. Um, yeah, he's an awesome ambassador. Uh, I always encourage people to watch his Ted talk. He does. He will blow your mind about the universe of fungi. And what most of us don't realize is that we, 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 we would, as a species, we wouldn't exist on this planet without fungi. Um, they're a keystone species. We don't give them credit for, for our existence very much. And he points out also that through the previous, you know, great extinctions of this planet, the species that survived were the ones that paired with fungi. And here, and here we are again, yeah. moving into another great extinction. And my, you know, my understanding is that one of our best bets for regenerating the planet and staying on it is to pair and work with fungi. Yeah, I uh, 
I like the psilocybin producing fungi myself, but that's another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you should get, but, you should get uh, Paul Stamets on for that one. Yeah, I will. I'll see if I can get him on. Um, I think he said in one of his talks that the fungi are, aren't they one of the largest, if not the largest living organism yeah. on the planet? Yeah, there's a huge one. I can't remember if it's an organ or not, uh, but it's a, it's a huge mass. Um, yeah, they're, they're far out. Again, recommend that TED Talk. 18 minutes will change your reality and understanding about fungi in our, our world. And just so people know, his last name is spelt, let's see, S-T-A- S-T-A-M-E-T-S, Paul Stamets, S-T-A-M-E-T-S. If you search him on Google, you'll you'll find him. And uh, he's got a lot of great uh, supplements. I use his uh, detox support. I use a few of them. I use Lion's Mane for stimulating neurogenesis. And I encourage uh, the, 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 the ladies because, you know, I have two wives, so Penny and Angie both work raising mana. So we, we give him, um, lion's mane mushrooms to help his brain growth and development as well. And, and, and you can get USD organic, USDA organic lion's mane mushrooms at most, uh, health food or, or big, decent shopping stores too. Um, you know, in your book, uh, you talk about stones and you show your chapter on herb spirals, the ultimate garden bed, and I, you haven't been to my place here. I don't know if Paul, I mean, if Scott Ford told you about how I charge water with stones, but I do a lot of uh, exercise with stones and, and I build stone stacks and various formations and mandalas out of stone. And my soul just guided me to how to charge water. And it was just a, a, a kind of a mind blowing thing that, that, uh, that came out of that. And, and sometime when you're up here, I'll, or I can send you a picture, but uh, uh, my point was, I loved your section there because some beautiful things that you do with stones in your book. And it really adds a lot of gorgeous uh, effects to the garden. And there's just so many benefits to stones. So could you share a little, uh, some tips on what people can easily do with stones to enhance their home gardens and some of the amazing benefits that stones offer yes, in a garden? Uh, the herb spiral is, is, is kind of what I call a classic uh, edible architecture. Uh, it has so many functions and it's a great planter. It's a large planter uh, for the space it takes up. And it, since it's spiraling, it's creating more footprint for planting. So this is extra helpful for people with limited space. You don't have to have ground to build it on. You could build it on a patio, a driveway. Uh, that's another big benefit for these. And you could even go further in playing with microclimates where the top of the herb spiral, very sunny, windy. Uh, you do your Mediterranean herbs. You know, you do your rosemary and thyme. And as you come down the spiral facing east, getting a little protection from that late afternoon sun. Uh, you can do things like parsley. And coming down again, the southern face of it, very hot and warm again, another great place for your Mediterranean herbs, whether that's you know lavender, uh, basil. And then coming down to the low part in the north where it's a little more moist, you could do land crest and very cool, more wet-loving herbs. So it creates this cornucopia, this opportunity within this small footprint um, and then additionally, the stones, and this may not be pertinent to your hot weather spot in San Diego, but it, it creates a microclimate. So 
it warms up early in the season and then it goes later into the season. And in our in our experience, a lot of things that would not overwinter well in our climate will overwinter in and on the herb spiral because of that, that added sort of uh, heat effect from the stones. And then the stones also create perennial habitat for beneficials. You know, whether that be salamanders, spiders, you know, beneficial insects that help balance the insect ecology for your landscape. So, yeah, maintaining that perennial habitat is key, uh, whether it's piles of sticks, piles of rocks, um, you know, water sources. So the the herb spiral looks really good. It appeals, you know, even to front yard, you know, fancy suburban neighborhoods and restaurants, uh, but yet has a lot of function built into it. Yeah, they're they're a favorite of mine. Um, yeah, we and you can even play with them. You can do like a you, you could do like a double spiral. You know, you know, yin yang. You know, you I could see you doing one of those out there, Paul. Yeah, well, I looked at your book and. I just like, wow, I'm going to have to make that a project because I, I, my whole front yard at my home in Vista is just all stone sculptures and people love it and take pictures of it all the time and stop and look and talk. And it's amazing how stones captivate something very primal in people. But um, one of the things too about stones is they are very, very useful um, and effective for um, water conservation. I because I lift stones, I'm always amazed. Like, right, we've had some heavy rains up here lately. And when I go out and pick those stones up, they're like, a lot of them are like sponges, man. They'll double their weight after they sit on the ground and get rained on for a while. And I've noticed just from working with them and, and seeing how the plants interact with them, they're extremely good for controlling the uh, flow of water, regulating water yes, use. Uh, there's, there's, not, there's another technique for stacking stones on, you know, on a garden bed. Uh, what happens is the air temperature changes, the water actually condenses on the stones and they act as little irrigators. So even just doing like a tripod of stones in a garden bed will create habitat, will change the microclimate a little bit, and then will actually begin to attract moisture. You mean just stacking them like a little little pyramid? pyramid. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing stuff. And, and, uh, you know, one thought that came to me is, of course, we're going to have people listening to the podcast of a a range of, of, um, you know, financial flexibility. But a number of my clients and people that I know that are busy people and may not necessarily, you know, want to jump up and say, oh, wow, I'm going to go gardening will hire gardeners to come do a lot of the kinds of things that you share in your book. And they don't really have to do much at all, except go out and pick the herbs or the vegetables or whatever. And I know, you, you know, you, you told me, I think you're phasing out of that, that part of your business where you would build the, these types of gardens for people, but there are people out there that do them. We've got a, a, a biodynamic gardening consultant that came uh, to our house and helped Penny, kind of revamp the whole garden area in the house and it's just beautiful. So the point being is for those of you that want to have the benefits of a garden and want to have some of these medicinal herbs and vegetables and increase your sperm count and fer- fer- fertility with something easy to do, it probably costs you a lot less money to hire a, a skilled gardener to get your resources right right in your backyard than it would be to keep going into doctors and having in vitro vitro fertilization. And, uh, you know, some people seem to not realize that if your body's not healthy enough to reproduce, 
and you use tricks to do it, you open the door wide for having potentially unhealthy uh, children being born yeah. and children with all sorts of birth defects. So I think when we realize that a lot of the things that medicine's making truckloads of money on all boil down to just getting back to the basics, there's that's one of the things I really loved about your book and your whole approach is there's actually a lot we can do. And if the most we can do is just remember that the best vote we have is our dollar. And that if we start supporting the local farmers at the farmer's markets and buying real certified organic food and, uh, you know, making little steps to enhance the quality of our life, because every time we spend money on something that supports the planet that way, we're all really making a change. And eventually we have to start starve some of these large corporations out. These big corporations are like, you know, giant dinosaurs with massive diets. And if we just stop feeding them, then they have no choice but to go out of business or start providing the kind of products that we're demanding. So bringing this uh, amazing podcast to a close, is there anything you'd like to share as a wrap up or some final comments or wake up calls (laughs) and, 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 um, also, where can people find more about you, your products, your books, or hire you as a sure, consultant? Sure, sure. Um, backing up a step there, I would encourage people to look for businesses that are doing edible landscaping uh, and permaculture. There, there are a lot of startups uh, because there has been a, a, a grow, a growth in interest uh, for people having other people help them get their garden started. So even if they're just helping you for a year or two, you also get the education from them and then hopefully transition into getting your own hands in the earth because that's really where a lot of the healing takes place. Um, It is healing. It's amazingly healing. One of my favorite things is taking my little boy outside and just being barefooted and he loves to stack stones. And it's been fun because as he's grown, he can pick up bigger and bigger stones. So it's like I get to see this progression, but it's so natural. And he just absolutely loves being in the dirt, loves all these natural things. And, you know, I, I... as much as as being on a kid, you know, my parents worked us like, uh, you know, slaves. So my childhood experience on a farm was was one of more of like a, a boot camp in the military. And but now that I'm an older man and, and I look back, I realized how amazing of a, a gift it was to be raised on a farm and how it gave me this incredible foundation of health and vitality and strength and People spend all this money going to the gym, but if you just spend some time in your yard working with stones and digging some dirt and hoeing and shoveling, and it's it's just absolutely amazing. You get connection to the elements. You can breathe fresh air. You can be with the family, and you get to actually eat the products of your own labor, and it, it it's really closes the circle, and it makes your home a sacred space and it reconnects you to the earth. And then you realize that we are inherently an expression of the earth and that she really needs us to be aware of her needs because we've gotten into this habit of just taking, taking, taking and not giving back. And there's no place better than a garden, even a small garden to close the loop and, 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 and participate in that 
organic cycle. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Uh, uh, made me think yesterday, uh, my son was moving these big, big chunks of coral on the beach around. And he's like, he's like, look at me, I'm Paul Check. <laughs> So, yes, yes. Uh, Another quote that came to mind, uh, Jeff Lawton is a a very well-known permaculturist. Um, I recommend his online material and videos as well. But here's a quote that goes something like, uh, you know, all the problems of the world can be solved in the garden. And, and that takes some time to chew on. At first, I was like, hold on, no way. And the more I sit and think about it, I think there's a lot of truth in that as well. So, yes, it's healing for us, but then it's also a space where where a lot of the challenges that we're facing and going to face can be worked out. It's a good space to come together over. Um, but, yeah, I got something I want to talk about. I can't not talk about pawpaws. Yeah, good. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, I, you know, I was so busy talking about everything else, and I, I actually asked you to talk about that too because um, one of my students who became a vegetarian was having a hard time getting enough protein into his body, and his research led him to pawpaws, and he was telling me how amazing they were. And then when you mentioned it to me, I said, "Oh, wow, you got to talk about pawpaws," and you said you have a great source to get them, so. That, that's something I'd love for you yeah, to share so about. The pawpaw is the only member of the custard apple family, which is all tropical, subtropical. You know, it's the soursop, you know, the guanabana, uh, the cherimoya. It is the only member of that family that is as traveled north into the cold regions all the way up to, you know, southern Canada. And it is basically a tropical tree that took that hike on receding glaciers over millenniums and produces an absolutely exquisitely flavored custard-like tropical fruit uh, and grows wild in at least 26 states in the U.S. and is obviously very adaptive in being grown uh, way outside of its native range. Uh, and I'm a big fan of it. Maybe that's partly because you know I live in the tropics and worked with all of its relatives there. And now that I'm back in the north, that's my connection. Um, but it is really an anomaly. It's a phenomenal tree plant. It's very medicinal as well. Uh, South Korea has planted millions of these trees just for their medicinal qualities that's in their leaves and twigs. So it's a powerful species. Uh, we've been celebrating it with a pawpaw festival every September when it harvests uh, in our, our neck of the woods in Maryland. And the interest uh, is phenomenal. We, we, we sell out and we have to limit the people that come uh, to the festival. There's a big festival in Ohio that's been going on for 20 years that gets like almost 10,000 people coming to it. Uh, so this is something very real, very exciting uh, that will not let you down uh, as far as a, a, a delicious experience. Um, so the pawpaws, when they're cultivated, you know, you got the select cultivars of pawpaws can be very large, easily a pound, you know, the size of a large mango. When you open them up, they have this custard flesh, usually yellow to orange. uh, And it's literally like eating dessert. And it has flavors of banana and mango and pineapple in it. Uh, And they're very rich. They have a full amino count. They have all the essential amino acids in them, which is phenomenal. Um, It is. Yeah, that's that's why my my uh, friend 
was telling me about them because they they really are like for a person who needs to get more protein in their diet without eating meat, say a, a vegan vegetarian type lifestyle, uh, they turn out to be an amazing uh support system for that. Yeah, and lifestyle. if you're big into fruits and you're relying on fruits as a big part of your diet, you know, in comparisons with, you know, bananas and apples and oranges, they have higher protein and fat. Um, they've got three times as much, you know, vitamin C as an apple. Um, they're just, they're just, they're powerhouses. I mean, it's hard to eat more than one pawpaw. They're so rich and satisfying. Uh, you can al- almost think of it like, you wow. know, like a, like a avocado fruit. Um, so yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I'm, I'm actually my, the book I'm working on right now, which I hope to have out, uh, in June in print is called for the love of Paul Paul's. Um, so, so keep an eye out for that. And yeah, yeah. If you're in our neck of the woods, uh, Maryland, come to our festival or they're popping up around the country. You know, they're, they're really, it's a, it's a renaissance, um, you know, cause it's also a plant that that's, that's been in the woods and it, and it was something culturally that we used to interact with. I think it comes back to, to us losing our roots and looking for them again. And, you know, I think part of that, you know, the pawpaw offers that. It has a deep tap root uh, that goes deep into the earth. So it's, it's drawing us in many ways. Um, and I'm, I'm working with that energy to guide people, you know, back toward perennial agriculture. You know, for me, it's a bit of a poster child. And, and I'll, take, I'll take any interest uh, toward perennial agriculture I can get. Um, so I'm working with that a lot. And yeah, I, um, I hooked up uh, uh, a discount uh, for your listeners, Paul, from Integration Acres. Uh, so Integration Acres is um, a place in Ohio, a uh, guy named Chris Schmiel. He's also a permaculturist, and he started the, the Ohio Pawpaw Festival. That's in his 20th year. So, oh, yeah, right so on. he's got a lot of frozen pulp, which he's taking the work out of. You know, that's one of the challenges is, is, is pulping a pawpaw. Uh, he's got it frozen. Right. Uh, and he's got a lot of other things, too. But, I, you know, I've, I think I hooked up a good 10% discount for, for people going, uh, going, going through you, Paul. Do they need to say anything specific when they make the order? I imagine it's a web-based, it's a web-based order, order and you know we we will make up a code, whatever you want. We'll make it Paul check. Okay, Paul, Paul check. check. Paul check for your ten percent discount on what turns out to be one of the most amazing high protein fruits in the world. That I've got great feedback from the people that I know using it, including vegetarian athletes. So that's fantastic. Michael, where can people find out more about you and your books and uh, your services? The most comprehensive would be my website. Uh, my business name is uh, Ecologia. It's a Portuguese word for, for ecology. So it's uh, ecologiadesign.com. Uh, my site has a lot of good information on it. Uh, a lot of my book is is trans transposed on that site. Uh, socially, I would say I'm mostly on Instagram. Uh, at Permaculture Ninja. Uh, I have a couple of different Facebook pages, one under my name. Uh, I have a new one under the uh, For the Love of Paul Pauls, um, under my original book, uh, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. So, you know, I'm pretty easy. I'm pretty easy to find. Did you give us the website for the Paw Paw? Uh, Integration Acres. I believe that's the the, the full site name of it and we'll put it in your notes um yeah integrationacres.com yes. i imagine 
Okay, yeah. Well, so for those of you listening, look in the show notes. 10% discount. Paul Check is the secret code. It's not so secret anymore. And I, I hope it's not secret so you get to enjoy this. I'm going to get a hold of these things myself. I ha- I think someone gave me some a while back because I remember the description of it that you gave and the flavor of it. And so I'm excited to get a hold yeah. of some more and uh, get my, my little boy on, on that with his yeah. mushrooms. And, uh, it's great. It's great smoothies. I mean, it's just, it'll freeze and stay frozen for almost a couple of years. I pulled out frozen pulp from two years and it's been fine. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, Michael, it's been an amazing journey we've taken together and I hope everybody listening's really enjoyed it. And, you know, Michael and I, uh, we both talked about the importance of not just having a doomsday conversation uh, because sometimes the facts of the soil and and the and corporate industry and and clear cutting the land and all the things we're talking about can just be overwhelming for people. But I just want to close by saying that you know the first step to change is awareness, and the podcast gives you awareness. And then doing the things like going to local farmers markets, purchasing more certified organic food. If you're not sure whether the food's real organic or not, one simple thing to do is like if you go to a supermarket and it's a bag of carrots and it says Joe's Organic Certification, all you got to do is search that name on the internet, call them and say, what does it take to get your organic certification? If all you've got to do is pay money, but there's no requirement for them to test your soil and for you to go through what's called a gestation period, you can rest assured it's a bogus organic certification. Those of you that want to learn more about working with your own body and soul to get guidance on diet can look at my webinar, Primal Pattern Eating, which is at thecheckinstitute.com. And I show you three key ways of working with your body, one through what I call logging, so you can track what you're eating and your symptom responses to food, the next one's muscle testing. And the third one's soul connection, where I teach you how to connect to your own soul and take guidance from your soul. And the muscle testing technique and the soul connection technique work very, very well. So if you're walking through a, a supermarket and there's all these different food options in front of you, maybe three or four different organic options, you're not sure, you can just ask your body. It'll tell you. It knows. It'll know which of those options are the most nutritious if you can connect with your soul, which is a deeper practice, it'll tell you. You can ask your soul if this is real or not real. Should I buy it or not? Should I eat it or not? And so if you like that kind of information, check out my Primal Pattern Eating uh, webinar series, which is now an online course. And if you like that kind of information, that's what our Holistic Lifestyle Coaching Program is all about, which starts with Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 1 online which is designed for you to get yourself healthy. It's not a a technical course. It's really about putting all the methods I share in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, and others into practice so that you have personal awareness and experience of how powerful diet and lifestyle factors that are easy to manage uh, can change your life. And then if you get excited and want to share that knowledge as a professional holistic lifestyle coach level two is our entry level professional training program, a comprehensive five day course where we teach you how to do a very thorough assessment of a person's diet and lifestyle 
And we give you a lot of training on how to coach people. And that progresses to HLC3, where we go into advanced assessment and correction. So there's lots available for you through the resources Michael shared that I've shared through the Czech Institute. And what a great time we've had together, Michael. Thank you very much. And thank you for all the love you're sharing Thanks, with Paul. the world. It's been, it's been fun surfing the 4D wave with you. Right on, bud. Well, I'll look forward to getting this podcast out. So we'll all talk right. again Thanks. soon. Be well. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Michael Judd. You can get Michael's Kindle book, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist, free on Amazon until April 11th. Michael has also arranged a 10% discount on Pawpaw Pulp for Paul's listeners. Simply go to integrationacres.com and enter the code PaulCheck at checkout. You can find Michael on Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash for the love of pawpaws. And also www.facebook.com forward slash edible land perm twist or connect with him on Instagram at permaculture ninja. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at living 4D podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living 4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's blog at checkinstitute.com forward slash blog.